there, Hurly Burly fam. It's Aubrey here, letting you know that we've received some emails from you all saying that some of our streaming services that provide the Hurly Burly Shakespeare show to you are only providing the most recent five episodes, which sucks. But until we figure that situation out, you can always catch every single one of our episodes at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains saucy language of the modern and early modern varieties. So plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make. But don't say we didn't warn you. I have yet to come up with a sound effect that I feel befits You need like a, a taste like of a, text. a page turning. Mmm. Mm-hmm. Like a, mm-hmm. yeah, like, like a, that, or like a, yeah, like that, exactly that. That sound? That sound. That it, is the sound that I want. Are you sure that couldn't be, like, mistaken for a fart, though? Like, I don't, like the fanning of paper. Okay, well, Girl, I don't know. I'll play around, I'll play around with that. All right. But I like that idea. So, yes. let's kick it off. Shakespeare show. We are your hosts, Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock, and together we are Hamlet. Thank you so much for listening. We hope, as always, that you enjoy the show and come back for more. This week we are talking about Thomas Middleton's A Chase Made in Cheapside. Yeah, most weeks we discuss a different play by that nice William Hudson Shakespeare. Um, but sometimes, like this week, we pick one of Billy's colleagues, and this week it's Tommy Mids, aka T Middleton. Uh, in 101 episodes, you get all of the introductory stuff, everything you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff that you get nowhere else. Yeah. Oh, also, we have a new feature this week, which is so exciting. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we're calling this a taste of text. A taste of text. So what we're going to do in this feature, in this new feature, is that we are reading through a tiny but crucial snippet of the play to give you a sense of its flavor. Yeah. When we can. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, when we can, we will try to keep it to self-contained scenes. Right. Yeah. Which just means that we're finding really tiny scenes. Let's find the (laughs) shortest scene in the play and read the whole thing. Yeah. Yep. So in in, uh, A Chase Made in Cheapside, the shortest scene is Act 2, Scene 4, on the street outside the Allwit's house. Enter midwife with a child, Maudlin, and the gossips to the cursing? What yeah, is that I word? Think, I think it. I think it's a typo from the text I pulled it from. I think they mean nursing All or right, the christening. Oh, christening! Oh, They're on their way to the christening. the christening. It's a phonetic spelling, y'all. Y'all yeah. can't see it, so I'll yeah. spell it out. The word in this text I pulled digitally is spelled K U R S N I N G. Christening. <laughs> it means christening. It does. AKA a baptism. Four two, four two, four two. Ooh, this is interesting. In my text, four two is a completely different scene. Two four. Two four. That's why. In my text, four two is is also a completely different different scene. scene. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Two four. We are so on top of our shit tonight. Like adulting, like whoa. It's great. 
Why did you pick 2-4 instead of 4-2? I don't know. Is 4-2 really short as well? Yeah, it's six lines. Oh, shit. Okay. Honestly, I just, like, I was scrolling through. That's cool. And this one was real short. It is real short. It's, what, 21 lines? Yep, 21 lines. Which scene is 4-2? It's a scene with just Tim and somebody else. (laughs) Is it Tim and his Welsh whore? I feel like we're giving away a lot of spoilers right now, but that's all right. You'll understand, folks. Stick with us. You'll understand who the hell we're talking about in a minute. It's Tim and the tutor. (laughs) Whatever. We'll read this one since you've gone to all the trouble of putting in. And in this one, we get to do a bunch of voices. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm ready. I think I'm ready. Right. So all of these people have entered for a christening. Yes. And it's a bunch of gossips and some Puritan ladies and maudlin Yellowhammer, who we'll talk about in a minute. Great. Good Mrs. Yellowhammer. In faith, I will not. Indeed, it shall be yours. I have sworn a faith. I'll stand still then. So will you let the child go without company and make me forsworn? You are such another creature. Before me, I pray, come down a little. Not a whit. I hope I know my place. Your place? Great wonder, sure. Are you any better than a comfort maker's wife? And that's as good at all times as apothecaries. You lie, yet I forbear you too. Come, sweet sister, we go in unity and show the fruits of peace like children of the spirit. I love lowliness. True, so I say. Though they strive more, there comes as proud a behind as goes before. <laughs> Every inch, your faith. <laughs> Exit. <laughs> Those were some dumb voices. Oh, the gossips. Yeah, the gossips. Doing the gossiping. Yeah. And jostling. That was a fun little segment. Yeah, see if you can tell later, uh, like, see if you can just quiz yourself, like, when were we Puritans and when were we gossips? (sighs) Anyway, so that's fun. That'll make sense later. We will have a one-line summary of that in our summary. Great. Um, Okay, moving on. It's time to re-meet the contemporary. Yeah, so we're going to briefly review a little bit of things you need, a little bit of information about Thomas Middleton, a.k.a. T-Mids. He was born in 1580. He was resident playwright for the Admiral's Men by 1602, maybe before 1602. Uh, The Admiral's Men were the biggest rivals to Shakespeare's company. Mm-hmm. He was a big-time collaborator working with Decker, Chettle, Monday, Shakespeare, Drayton, Webster, and probably every other early modern dramatist you've ever heard of, except for maybe the professional asshole, Ben Jonson. We have already talked about The Changeling and The Witch on this pod, which are two of his uh, other wonderful plays. But some of his other great, great, great plays that are definitely coming up this season are Women Beware Women and The Revenge Tragedy to End All Revenge Tragedies, the Revenger's Tragedy. Which, you know, the lack of creativity in the title belies actually how kind of amazing that play is. Oh my so God, that just you wait, folks. So good. We will get there. I taught Revenger's there. Tragedy uh, last spring. Mm-hmm. And did your students dig it? I hope they, they did. did. They were like, what the fuck is this play? And I was like, <laughs> I know, bitches. <laughs> like, you're telling me. Skull. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Moving uh, on. I love it. Yeah. So before we jump into a summary, we, of course, like to give you a five word unhelpful title. Mine is Almond Milk Can't Impregnate You. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's just a PSA, really. Yeah, mine is children hidden by meat? Question mark? Hilarious. Yep, it is. Those it's were one of my favorite stage directions of all time. <laughs> Absolutely. And those were deeply unhelpful titles. I feel Super, like like they're not even cleverly secretly helpful this time. They're just no, fucking unhelpful. They're just really unhelpful. Yeah. I feel like we outdid ourselves. We, well, I feel like, yeah, well, we did good. Our goal is to be unhelpful. So ha yeah. ha ha, suck it. We're unhelpful. <laughs> yep. Okay, time for a little Gerardus Personae, but only the really important ones. And folks, you're going to love these names. Oh so like, listen carefully. God, I love city comedy. All right. Uh, so we start with Sir Walter Horhound, who is an aging knight and the local philanderer. He is getting it on with Mrs. Allwet and also probably a, leather, a lot of other people. Yeah. Then we have Mr. and Mrs. Allwit. He's knowingly a cuckold, and she's had a bunch of kids by Sir Walter that he claims as his. Sir Oliver Kicks and Lady Kicks cannot conceive children without the help of a, quote, magic elixir uh, and also the help of Mr. Touchwood Sr. Yes, Touchwood Sr. is super fertile. Like, he can barely look at a woman without making her pregnant, apparently. That's just all you need to know about him. He has a son whose name is Touchwood Jr. Uh, I think it's his brother. Right, his brother. Sorry. I saw I saw younger brother and I said younger son. Or I, I know it's younger. totally counterintuitive anyway, to yes. have a senior and a junior yes. not be father yes. and son. Yeah. So Touchwood Jr. is his younger brother, right? And Touchwood Jr. is in love with Maul Yellowhammer. Yes. Maul Yellowhammer is the titular chaste maid that apparently everyone wants to marry because there's only one chaste maid in all of Cheapside. This is she's it. That's why the play is titled. But the play is titled. Yep. She has a mother, Maudlin Yellowhammer, who wants Maul to marry Whorehound. Yep. Mr. Yellowhammer is Maul's dad. He's a wealthy goldsmith, and he also wants Maul to marry Whorehound. And then we have dear, sweet, wonderful Tim Yellowhammer, who is Maul's prodigiously dim-witted brother, and we love yep. him. He's yeah. wonderful. Also, his name is Tim. Yeah. Like, it reminds me of that. You've never have you seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail? No, fuck that show. Oh, okay. I well, hate Monty Python. I think it's super for those dumb. who know. You know what I'm talking about. It's the you know he's like this grand wizard, and they're they're thinking he's gonna have like a grand wizard title, and he goes, but some people call me Tim. <laughs> it's great. But if you don't like Monty Python, we'll just move on, mm. Jess. I mean, my ex-husband's name is Tim, so. <laughs> That's what well, I have to go. offer about that name. Great. Cool. Uh, so, hey, why is this play so goddamn popular? It so is not. It it's not. It is, though. It re- is it? Kind of, yeah, it's the third most popular uh, Middleton play. Great. But, like, in terms of being produced in the 20th century? Or is it yeah. just, like, is it, like, Arden of Faversham popular where, like, people just love to teach it? I mean, it. according to the Oxford... Uh, the Oxford Middleton, it's it's the third most produced play of Thomas oh. Middleton. Well, so. knock me down with a feather. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's only like in the last 40, 50 years, but uh, oh, okay. it's, yeah, people people are into this. Oh, well, good. Uh, good. So I guess it is popular. Mm-hmm. More popular than I had assumed. Um, because city comedy is fun, yeah. especially when you're making fun of middle class people. I mean, that is Question the whole mark? goal of city comedy is to make right. fun of middle yeah. class people. Um, also, the title alone is hilarious, but it's also kind of a 400 year old inside joke. You would mm-hmm. need to know that everyone in Cheapside is terrible. Right. And slutty, apparently. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so most people don't like laugh out loud when they hear the title anymore. 
but if there were time travelers, they might. Yeah. Um, real quick, I don't know if uh-huh. we've ever really talked about what city comedy is. Oh, yeah. Let's take a so moment let's, for that. Let's do that. So city comedy is sure. a genre of comedy in uh-huh. English early modern theater. Um, it comes from Johnson. Johnson is the guy who sort of put this forward and did it and perfected. That's the professional asshole we yes. referenced earlier. Yeah, yeah. Um, Johnson, Middleton, and Marston are the primary playwrights who wrote in city comedy style. Yeah. Uh, Shakespeare does not do city comedy. Merry Wives is like city comedy adjacent. Yeah, it's about as city comedy as Shakespeare gets. Yeah, but it's not it's not really city comedy. Um, right. City comedy is like localized satiric yeah. to that location. Um, they're often like really intricately plotted romance stories. Mm-hmm. Um, city comedy is more realistic. It doesn't really have magical stuff or supernatural stuff. Yeah. Not really. I mean, some of it does. Um, it's going to be widely satirical, which I maybe already said, and has a broad range of characters from different ranks. Mm-hmm. But the action is mostly focused on the citizens, the middle class, the everyday people. Yeah. Um, and is almost always set in London. Yeah. What I love so. about city comedies is the the surnames of the characters mm-hmm. are very silly mm-hmm. and they tend to reveal something about the character yes. of the character. Yes. Antanaclassis. You're yeah. welcome. They're a little uh it's like allegorical naming. Yes. Like yeah. whorehound. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or Yellowhammer when he's a goldsmith. Mm, yes. Um, and Touchwood. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole list. Here's a whole list of city comedies, uh, including Every Man in His Humor by Ben Johnson, mm-hmm. yeah. The Family of Love by Thomas Middleton, The Wise mm. Woman of Hoxton by Thomas Haywood, A Trick to Catch the Old One by Thomas Middleton, The Dutch Courtesan by John Marston, Westward Ho, Eastward Ho, Northward Ho, all of the Ho plays. There's there's a whole list of like 15 or 20 of them, um, but it's Johnson, Middleton, Haywood, Middleton, Marston, Decker, Johnson, Marston, Decker, mm-hmm. Johnson, Webster, Middleton, Middleton, and so on. Middleton, Middleton, Middleton. Johnson, Middleton. Johnson, Johnson. Um, I would say that, I mean, Ben Johnson kind of invented it, so he is most closely associated yeah. with city comedy, but the better city comedies were written by people who are not Johnson because Johnson sucks and you can take that mm. to the bank. <laughs> he was a professional asshole. Yes. So. All right. Should we should we do the thing? Yes. Why I do believe it's summary time. So, we will now summarize A Chaste Made in Cheapside for you in a segment that this week we're calling This Summary Will Finish Quicker Than Sir Walter Horhound. I went back and forth between Touchwood Senior and Sir Walter Horhound because I feel like it's equally true for both. Right. But I'm into it. Walter Horhound is the funnier name. So agreed. See, yeah. that's what I went with too. Yeah. yeah. Well Get done. out of my head. Well done with that title. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Are you ready to God, I'm this is a so long ready. Long summary, girl. I'm sorry, I trimmed it down. I really did. We'll get through. Just read fast. <laughs> Literally, what do I say to you every week? Get the let out. I will. <laughs> I will read to fast. Me. Yeah, I love it so much. All right, I got my timer ready. Uh, I should maybe scroll back up so that I can see okay. Echo. 
Okay, I'm ready when you are. Act one. Maudlin Yellowhammer is very critical of her daughter, even though she's legit the only chaste girl in town, saying she's not very feminine and she should feel lucky that she's getting married to Sir Walter Whorehound. Maul's brother Tim is on his way home from uni because Walter is bringing a woman for him to marry in exchange for Maul's hand. The Yellowhammers believe that this woman is Sir Walter's landed niece, a Welsh gentlewoman, but she is in fact a prostitute. Upon meeting Sir Walter, Maul tries unsuccessfully to flee. Touchwood Jr., a young man who's in love with Maul, dupes Yellowhammer into making him a wedding ring for her, saying that it's oh, it's the same size as Maul's finger. He also says that he needs the ring quickly as he's trying to steal his bride away from her father. <laughs> and Mr. Yellowhammer does not see through this. Elsewhere, we meet Mr. Allwit, whose wife is expecting a baby. Allwit describes how Sir Walter has taken care of his family for many years because Sir Walter has had a long-standing affair with Mrs. Allwit, and that he is the father of all of their children. And because of this arrangement, Allwit will try anything to keep Sir Walter single and the cash flowing. In Act 2, Touchwood Sr., who is the older brother of Touchwood Jr., must live separately from his wife because he keeps knocking her up. He's also supporting his other bastard babies on the DL. Sir Oliver Kicks and his wife, who are barren, are told that Touchwood Sr. has a fertility water that mm. he drinks, which could make Lady Kicks pregnant. So the Kicks is prepared to pony up the dough to Touchwood for this water. Semen. Mm, it's semen. Yeah. Keep going. Meanwhile, Alwit <laughs> and Sir Walter talk about Mrs. Alwit's new baby girl, and they make arrangements for her christening. In fact, when it comes time to choose gossips or witnesses at the baby girl's christening, Sir Walter says that he will serve as one himself to prevent the suspicion that Sir Walter is the father. Alwit offers to get Touchwood Jr., whom Sir Walter does not know, to serve as another witness. The various other witnesses, include Puri including Puritan woman, arrive on the scene and get ready to go inside to the christening. Everyone squabbles over the line order to enter the church. Amid the chaos, Touchwood Jr. has picked up the ring that he had Yellowhammer make, and he and Maul make plans to steal away and be secretly married. Act 3, Touchwood Jr. sneaks away and joins with a parson who's going to marry him and Maul in secret. But the secret ceremony is broken up by Yellowhammer and Sir Walter. Yellowhammer leaves with Maul, whom he says he's going to lock up. All the women remark on how much the baby looks like Mr. Allwit. <laughs> Everyone, including the Puritan women, eat and drink to excess, but Allwit doesn't care because Sir Walter's footing the bill. Tim comes into the room, sees all of the married women, and leaves. The nurse drags him back in. Tim suffers wel welcoming kisses from all of the married women, a.k.a. the gossips. Touchwood Jr. tells his older brother about his plan to steal Maul away from Yellowhammer. Sir Kix and his wife enter, fighting about their inability to conceive. Touchwood Sr. he sells him the fertility water. And then tells the knight that he must ride for five hours to shake up the elixir and make it work. And when Sir Oliver leaves for this five-hour ride, Touchwood Sr. and Lady Kix go into her coach and get it on. After claiming that he will prove a prostitute to be an honest woman, Tim tries to speak to the Welsh woman, which is also the hooker that Sir Walter brought. He tries to speak to her in Latin, but she does not understand it. She tries to speak to him in Welsh, but Tim does not understand. It's all very, very funny. Maudlin comes in and realizes that Tim's use of Latin has caused the confusion. Allwit tries unsuccessfully to trick Yellowhammer into canceling Maul's engagement to Sir Walter. Touchwood Jr. and Maul attempt to escape across the river, but Maudlin jumps in the water and drags Maul back to land. Yellowhammer tells Sir Walter that they should be married first thing in the morning to prevent her from escaping again. In his grief over losing Maul again, Touchwood Jr. draws his sword on Sir Walter and they fight! 
Act 5, after a good shellacking from Touchwood Jr., Sir Walter says he wants to repent his wicked ways. And apparently, Touchwood Jr. is dead from the wounds given to him by Sir Walter. The Allwits refuse to harbor Sir Walter now that he's a wanted murderer and can't be any financial use to them, and he eventually ends up in debtor's prison. The Allwits vow to move to a fancy neighborhood and change their ways, too. Maul appears to die from a sickness she got while being dragged out of the water by her mother, and Lord knows what was in that water, so I guess it's believable. Mr. Yellowhammer suggests that they skip his daughter's funeral so that they can watch Tim marry the Welsh hooer, still thinking she's Sir Walter's wealthy relative. Lady Kicks is newly pregnant. Golly, that was fast. And Sir Oliver Kicks invites Touchwood Sr. and his entire brood of babies to live with them as long as he can keep getting Lady Kicks pregnant. At the funeral, Touchwood Sr. asks if the assembled crowd would have been joyous to see Maul and Touchwood Jr. married instead. The crowd says yes, at which point the two lovers rise from their coffins, surprise, admitting that they faked their deaths and are married by the parson right then and there. The Yellowhammers aren't there, so they can't stop it from happening. And also, their son is now married to a hooker. All of the funeral guests retire to dinner where they will celebrate both the new marriages. The end. I love this play. It's very silly. I love, I think what I love most is the like rising from the coffins at the last second. I just, oh my God. I think that's it's a good just... trope. <laughs> like, ta da! Yeah. It's great. All it's right. so great. All right. Yeah. Whew, it's really good. So, hey, what was our official time on that? Five minutes and seven seconds. Hooray! Yeah. Okay. Shall I tell you some things? Please do. I'm so excited to All hear right. the things. The deep dive into some reference books this week. Mm, um, so I said sexy. earlier that this play contains one of my favorite stage directions of all time. Uh, and that is in Act 2, Scene 2, around line 96-ish, um, where a wench with a basket and a child in it under a loin of mutton enter it's pretty good yeah so <laughs> the conceit is because it's lent um there there are issues with eating meat right um i forget why they're trying to smuggle the baby oh right so oh. they're trying to get rid of the baby because yeah. they don't want to feed the baby so what they do is they take the baby and they put it in a basket and then they hide it yep. under some some meat a loin of mutton yep. if you will so that the the constables who are out looking for people breaking the ban on meat will see the meat basket and confiscate it and then be bamboozled with a baby that they are now responsible for and this is like a random character in the play too it's not a consequential character it's just like a vignette of a street woman abandoning her child it's such a little (laughs) interlude and it's i think it's delightful because you have to have a prop baby and a prop basket and a prop mutton loin (laughs) <laughs> yep it's pretty good so pretty good um once upon a time some number of episodes ago i talked to you about the wiggins catalog of early modern drama which is mm-hmm. uh the one of the most comprehensive resources um for early modern plays that i have ever seen or heard of um and i wanted to do a little a little dive back in to that to see what the wiggins had to say about Chase Maiden Cheapside. So there are just a couple of things that I want to talk about. Um, first of all, we have the setting for this play, which uh, is 
they say the period is contemporary, so it's just a normal early modern 17th century play. Um, the action takes place during the first half of Lent, which began on Wednesday the 17th of February in 1613. Aren't you happy that you know those dates? Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yeah. Then we have the time scheme. So Act 2, Scene 3 takes place the day after Act 1, Scene 1. So up to 2, 3, that's all one day. And then everything after 2, 3 is right. the next day. <laughs> so she gets pregnant real fast. Yeah. Like, immediately. Um, it takes that's place some in powerful London. sperm to I know, touch right? what it has. I know. <laughs> and then we have this whole list of of places referenced in the play. So it lists a whole shitload of places in London, then a place in Middlesex, then a place in Surrey, then a place in Kent, then a place in England at large, then a place in Wales, then the Low Countries, then France, then Italy. These are all the places that are shouted out in the play. So wow. all of the neighborhoods that they talk about in London are Cheapside, Westminster, Holborn Bridge, The Bell Inn, Bow, The Inns of Court, Whitehall, St. Paul's Cathedral, The Royal Exchange, Bridewell, Newgate Prison, Turnbull Street, The Checker Inn, Queen Hythe, Bucklersbury, St. Paul's School, The Pissing Conduit, Trig Stairs, Puddle Wharf, Blackfriars Playhouse, Paul's Wharf, The Strand, and Goldsmith's Hall. Please tell me more about The Pissing Conduit. <sighs> I wish I could. Aww. <laughs> Alas, I know nothing. Mostly my intent in reading out that whole list was to illustrate to you, one, how fantastic a reference The Wiggins is, and two, how much London itself is a character in this play and in all city mm, comedies. Yeah. Um, London is like a another cast member because it's such a living, breathing organism. Totally. Um... I want to talk about some of the sources for this play. There is, in fact, one source for this play. It is a non-English text. I'm going to assume that it's French based on the name of the guy who is supposed to have written it, Antoine de la Salle. Okay. Um, that text is called The Bachelor's Banquet, and it was translated uh. in 1603 by Thomas Decker. Huh. Yeah. And that text apparently forms the basis for 2223 two, two, and 3-2. Interesting. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Um, it also, the, the play itself references the Bible several times. Uh, so we have the Bible, Cicero, Virgil, Ovid, Latin grammar, William Lilly's Latin grammar to be specific, um, something written by Michael Cavendish that is called 14 Heirs in Tablature to the Lute. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, a book... I think it's a book written by Thomas Campion called Observations in the Art of English Poesy and Thomas Middleton's very own Tragedy of a Tyrant and Lady, he references. Mm. Yeah. Then, to further illustrate to you the wildly usefulness of the Wiggins, it tells you all of the languages that are in the play. So English, obviously. Mm -hmm. Then there are 249 words in Latin. Yeah, because of Tim. Uh-huh. 17 <laughs> words in Welsh, spoken by the Welsh gentlewoman. Uh-huh. And one rude word in French. Ooh. That is literally what it says. One rude word. One rude word. Mm -hmm. Spoken by Alwit in 2-2. Go on a scavenger hunt, kids. I Go know. find it. <laughs> it's in 2-2. Two, two. 
Um, and then I think this is not this is not the last thing I want to say. I have one more thing to say after this. So there's not a lot of music in this play. There is some music in this play. Um, in four one, the Welsh gentlewoman sings part of a song called "Cupid is Venus's Only Joy." Um, and the musical setting for that survives. Like we we know what that music is, which Ooh. blows my mind whole. I love that so much. Um, and then in five two, Maul sings something called "Weep Eyes Break Heart," and we also have the musical setting for that. <gasps> Right? That's exciting. Right? Aren't you excited by that? I don't know where to find it, but to know that it's out there somewhere and someone could tell huh. me where it is um, is thrilling. Yeah. And then the last thing I want to say um, is the list of large portable objects. So these are like scenery props or like uh-huh. large props. Um, uh-huh. We have seating for at least one character. And then the country wench's baby that gets hidden under yep. the mutton. Uh, <laughs> That's the mutton baby. Yes, yes. The, the mutton baby. <laughs> then we have Mistress Allwit's baby. Three uh-huh. baskets, nine low stools with embroidered seats, a chair, a richly decked coffin, a coffin hung with epitaphs, and a garland of flowers. Wow. Yeah. And then we not also one, need a bed. but two prop babies. Mm-hmm. And not one, but play. two prop coffins. Yeah. For that double faked funeral. Yeah, which is question mark one of the only instances in early modern drama where two characters fake their deaths, like together. I I can't think of the top of my. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not anywhere near as extensively read as you are in these plays, so, like, I can't think of any. So, wow, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, well, in keeping with the references that you're going to need to know to understand and then possibly produce this play, um, I kind of wanted to to resurrect our Burbage Break feature just a little bit um, because I'm not going to talk about production stuff necessarily. Uh, I just want to talk about some pertinent early modern birth rituals because one, I think they're fascinating. And two, they are referenced a ton in this play because there are pregnant ladies and recently pregnant ladies. uh, And it's helpful to, yeah. And it's helpful to understand um, what these references mean. Just like you need to know, um, you know, all of these like references to parts of London. So you, I think you need to understand the, the references to some of these birthing rituals. So, so let's say you're an early modern lady person and uh, you're going to give birth. Your pregnancy presumably is going okay. It's healthy. Things seem to be going well. About six weeks before you're due, you would go into what's called confinement. Um, and this was by no means just an Elizabethan thing. This was confinement was like a, a, a thing that many women did for many centuries. Um, but you would go into confinement, which was your own space in your in your rooms uh, with the windows all shut to keep out the bad humors. Um, letting in no fresh air at all uh, and uh, with uh, lots of women, other women folk around you um, like midwives and such. No men were allowed into your chambers uh, when you were in confinement, except very rarely priests. Uh, Noble women and queens often had big parties and feasts to celebrate going into confinement. Interestingly though, here's what's funny about a lot of these like contemporaneous uh, accounts of early modern birth processes and rituals. They were written about by men at the time who, as I just said, literally were not allowed in the room 
where it happened. So, hmm, I roll. Anyway, uh, if a woman had the means um, or the contacts, she would also have sought the advice and support from a midwife, uh, a woman who had a great deal of experience and knowledge in delivering babies. And of course, midwifery is a profession that continues on to this day. Um, so the midwife at this time had to be a woman of known good character who was greatly trusted. She had to take an oath which dictated that she would not keep souvenirs from the birth like the umbilical cord or the placenta because witchcraft right? <laughs> like She had to vow that she wouldn't take those things home from a birth she'd worked um, because she might do witchy woo-woo to it and like curse the baby or whatever. Um, she might help the mother deliver sitting in a birthing stool. I'm not going to go into exactly what a birthing stool is, but you can Google it and find out for yourselves. Um, or for being cradled from behind, you know, um, as um, many women often do now. The midwife also knew how to turn a child uh, within the mother if it was breech in any way to get it to deliver um, properly. So she could she had all those skills and midwives still have those skills. Um, midwives were also at this time given the right to perform emergency baptisms, which was kind of rare and strange. Um, but if you think about it, infant mortality was so high that sometimes there was not time to get an actual priest into the room if it looked like the baby were unwell and was about to die. Uh, so they did not need to wait until the child was fully delivered if it looked like the baby was not going to live. If there was even a protruding limb, uh, like mid-delivery, the baby could be baptized uh, if the midwife had to. And priests worked with um, midwives to ensure that they knew the right words, and the midwives kept clean water on hand for that purpose, just in case. So babies were baptized as soon as possible after the birth, mostly as a precaution against infant mortality, which was a really high risk. Um, at this time, babies were also believed to be in danger from, quote, overlooking, which is basically getting a stink eye from, the, from a witch, um, and being stolen by fairies. Uh, and baptism was apparently the cure-all for all of that. It would protect the baby from overlooking and from changeling babies and from the devil in general. Uh, the baby was baptized covered in a bearing cloth, which it would then uh, continue to be wrapped in until after the mother's churching. And I'll talk about what that is in a minute. Baptisms were a cause for uh, an event for expensive gift giving also, especially in wealthy circles. Uh, in the time of Shakespeare, it was the custom to give presents of plate, often of great value. Uh, money, jewelry, cups were common, often also apostle spoons. And these were literally spoons that had a carved image of one of the 12 apostles in the handle. Um, so if you've ever wondered, if you're like me, and if you've ever wondered why your waspy parents got spoons when you were baptized, I think this tradition goes all the way back to that. I'm pretty sure. I never knew why. I just know that going through my baby things, I found a bunch of spoons. After the baptism came the fun part for the mommy, which is the gossip's feast. Um, the goss the word gossip comes actually from a shortening of God sibling and tends to refer to an old friend, usually a female friend. Uh, so basically the new mom's lady friends all of them <laughs> came around to her house and partied after the christening. Um, side note, the word gossip has also now sort of taken on a misogynistic and derogatory meaning. Uh, and it, it became a term for women talking in general. Hooray for misogyny. So there you go. Um, so that's the etymology of that word. Um, 
about a month after giving birth, women were churched or purified and then were allowed to reemerge into the social their social circles and reemerge into the world. Um, these are taken ex- from explicit instructions in the Old Testament, um, but that's also because women's gooey bodies are gross after pushing out a baby and heaven forbid be- men be made to witness the ick, let alone think about it. So like I gave the mom a chance to clean up for a month and then they would let her back out into the world. And because it comes up in the play, uh, if women could afford it, they also employed wet nurses, usually women of lower social status than themselves, um, usually with children of their own so that their boobs were actively working uh, and who would nurse their babies for them. Uh, so because there are wetness, there are uh, references in the play to wet nurses and dry nurses, which I'm not quite clear on what a dry nurse is. I guess just a nurse for a baby who doesn't suckle the child uh i mean it's probably the difference between like a a wet nurse you know who does the feeding and then like juliet's nurse sure who Who does who did do the feeding but didn't then did not because right she was not suckling 13 year old juliet yeah i mean that (laughs) is my guess my unscientific guess yeah so that's what i've got i'm into it i guess i like learning from you yeah, that was thanks. that was a nice little little treat for me to hear you teach me something rather than just be <laughs> like, let's talk about whatever fun, which is also a fun thing, right? But yeah, um, I like I like it when you teach me. Thanks. Yeah, I just I I do feel like these city comedies are such inside jokes that yes. they require a lot of dramaturgical research. They do. So they for sure do. You know, yeah, yeah. I, f- I figured that was the best use of my time this week. It's good. Also, I just really love weird early modern birthing rituals. I think they're just kind of crazy. They are. So, yeah. <laughs> well, like, if you think about it, there. like, the gossip's feast is kind of like the baby shower, but it happens after the baby's been born. It's kind of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Well, anyway. Absolutely. So, if you're, if you're looking for a modern correlation, are we playing a game? So, I just went to the OED. <laughs> Uh-huh. Because you know how I do. Uh, and a dry yeah. nurse is, in fact, a woman who takes care of and attends to a child but does not suckle it. Great. Yep. All right. Well, then I guess my context clues were right on point. Yep. That's exactly <laughs> it. Praise Thank you OED. for verifying. Girl, you know, <laughs> Thanks, OED. You know how I am. I, I'm I, always yeah. like, to the OED! Yes. <laughs> well, and you're the one who, it, because you still are at a university, you still have access to I the OED. So OED. I got to rely on you for yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Game time. Whoop whoop. I don't know if I know this play. Okay, here's what's weird. My cat Rafe like came running to me when I tooted on my kazoo just now, like it was his battle summons. Yeah, he knows. He does. All right. Um, do we have a five five? We don't have a five. We do not. I think it ends at five four. So if you want to just do the nearest, which would be 5-4. Yep, 5-4. All right. Line, do I have a 50? I do have a line 55. All right. Great. 5-4, 55. It's going to be a Latin line watch. Uh, Oh, fuck, it's prose. Um, Okay. Okay. Uh, So I'm going to cheat. And okay. Gonna, is I'm, there like a, a clause? No, that you can I'm, use? I'm like going to go to line 54. Oh, okay. Which I think is fine. Like 5, 4, 54. I'm going to do it. Sure. And that is a ominous line. Unison speech is oh. never not hilarious. 
Um, oh. Yes, this is an everyone on stage says this line. Never love it. Never was our so filled with joy and wonder. Great. Yeah, so for those unfamiliar with line roulette, Jess now has, now that we have a line to work with, she has one minute to tell us why that one line encapsulates the whole play. So I'm going to make Jess, my students play this uh, awesome. in two-ish weeks when oh, I love we it. start doing plays. Um, I love it. Okay, well, I've got my timer ready, oh, okay. so whenever right, you're, you're ready, you just okay. tell me to go. Yeah. And let's hear the line one more time. Never was our so filled with joy and wonder. Great. And that's Thank you. our with an H, like time. Mm-hmm. Our. A unit of time. Never was this unit yes. of time filled, so filled <laughs> with joy and wonder. Uh, okay. Great. So this play is about the impossible becoming possible or what seems to be impossible, in fact, being realized as being within one's uh, grasp, right? So we have all of the issues with the too many children and not enough children and all of that gets worked out, right? This whole issue of um, having a secure dynasty and a secure family line and uh, making sure that all of your inheritance is uh, all in a row and uh, Maul and Touchwood Jr. get together in the end, right? So it's, this is all, it's, all of this is to say, um, that what you want can in fact happen for you. Uh, And the reason that everyone who is on stage at this time says this is because uh, it is, it is an allegory for the world. And if you want it, you can have it. If you, if you, uh uh-huh. What, what's the line from, from um, Rocky horror? uh, Don't dream it, be it. Sure. That is this. Great. <laughs> that was not good, but like, <laughs> you know, it's whatever. Oh, Rocky. Yeah. I thought you meant that line. It's it's been a minute since I've done one of these. All right. Anyway. I, it's Yeah. Uh, meh. Yep. That was line roulette, yeah. folks. All right. Let's, uh, Yay. let's move on. <laughs> Moving on. So we do have a correction to issue. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Our perfect streak is now over. Um, We say a lot of things on this podcast, and sometimes we misspeak or misinterpret information or just plain get things wrong. So it's only right that we issue corrections as necessary. Yeah. So friend of the pod and frequent guest Molly Seremet this week tipped us off that we made a mistake in our Love's Labor's Lost 101 episode, which uh, was a long time ago now. Um, But that's fine. I still haven't listened to that episode. So way to go, Molly. Um... The King of Navarre, who we said did not have a name, does have a name. His name oh. is Ferdinand, like the bull. Aw. Yeah. He just wants to smell the flowers. Yeah. And is it referenced in the play, though, or is she talking about the historical King of Navarre? Hang on. I mean, I don't doubt Molly. I really don't. I just How dare cannot you question re- Molly? <laughs> I just can't remember hearing his name yeah, yeah. mentioned in the play. Yep. Um... So in, in, in fact, in the list, in, in the dramatist personae, he is called King Ferdinand of Navarre. Um, and the Arden says this about it. 
Ferdinand. This is closer to the Italian Ferdinando than Ferrand, the French form of the name. The Italian form became uh. popular in England in the mid-16th century and was given to Ferdinando Hayborn and Ferdinando Stanley, later 5th Earl of Derby, who were born respectively in 1558 and 1559. Shakespeare used mm. it for Alonzo's son in Tempest. The name is not spoken in the play and only appears in the opening stage direction to 1-1. Ah. Uh, yep. Okay. The king is only referred to his referred to by his title Navarre at 1-1 line 12 and in 2-1. Interesting. Yep. So, yeah, that's a that's a blink and you'll miss it kind of name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, thank you as always Molly Ceremit for setting us straight on that that girl keeps me honest yeah <laughs> all right it's time for some shakes bubble gossip mm-hmm. uh what have we got jess yeah so um also friend ish of the pod although she's never been on the pod but we can fix that get uh, in touch yeah girl right um, I, I mean she has her own podcast now so um, oh really oh yeah it's not a shakespeare related podcast but Cool. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, everybody's, it's very de rigueur. Everyone has <laughs> yes, one. Yeah. Yes. Um, so Haley Backrack or Bachrock. I'm actually not sure how to say her name and I feel like an idiot. Bachrock. Um, so apologies to Haley. Uh, she, she's a fellow Oregonian. She's studying in London at um, King's, King's College, I think. Mm-hmm working on her PhD, her pahood in uh, mm-hmm. early modern drama. Um, so I'm super jealous of her because she gets to see all the good theater, all the London theater for like not free, obviously, but she's there. So it's already less expensive than what I would have to pay to get to London and see the theater. So Six, do you know this play Six based on... I have heard of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the play is called Six and it's sort of a rock opera imagining of yeah. uh, Henry VIII's Six Wives and they yes. sort of... I mean, the way Haley depicts it, um, they sort of vie for who had it worst. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also sort of being hailed as like this super feminist reimagining and giving agency back to these women and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And so Haley has this uh, blog and she had written about how it is not, in fact, feminist and it is not, in fact, giving them agency. And in fact, it's super sexist. Uh, and it's a really interesting piece. Um, mm-hmm. We're going to throw a link up on the in the yep. episode show notes, whatever. Um, so go check it out. Give it a read. Uh, she's also on Twitter mm-hmm. somewhere. I don't have a Twitter open. <laughs> um, we've talked about her on the on the pod before. We like her work. Um, mm-hmm. It will not help me to search Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Typing Twitter into Twitter will not help me find Haley. So she's no. on Twitter at H Backrack or Bachrock. It's B A C H R A C H. So a lot of H's. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. some more letters. Anyway, she's really great. She's doing excellent work. Uh, and I only wish that she were closer so that I could actually hang out with her IRL and be two Oregonians lost in a sea of not Oregon together. Yeah, girl. Yeah. So she wrote this thing. She tweeted it out recently. It's uh, She wrote mm-hmm. this thing back in December of last year. So uh, it's yeah. old, but... Um, 
it came up again in sort of conversation and I read it and went, yeah, this is fucking interesting. I want to talk about this. So there it is. Yeah. Well, and I think six, um, when she was writing about it had, like she says in the very first paragraph of mm-hmm. this, um, post that it was just about to leave the UK and mm-hmm. go to Chicago for like a tryout for Broadway and yeah. I think yeah. Six is now on Broadway. Yeah. It's if it's not so, already there, it's heading there very, very soon. Yeah. It's confirmed and yeah. that's where it's going. And it's um and it has, yeah, it's been sort of a stealth uh sensation. Yeah. Um and like their chant is, you know, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Yeah. Um like fans of this musical. That's what they chant. Yeah. Um which, you know, if nothing else, it'll really solidify in your brain what happened to each of the wives. Yeah, so it's a fun mnemonic, I guess. Is it a mnemonic? Doesn't a mnemonic have, isn't it like, like uh, my very energetic mother just made us nine pizzas to remember the order of the planets? Isn't that a mnemonic? I I always... <laughs> to the OED! <laughs> I always, to me, I always define a mnemonic device as like anything that helps me remember something. So whether it's a clever rhyme or a, an acronym or whatever, I have a very broad definition of mnemonic device. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the OED what a mnemonic device is. If you want to be pedantic and ask the OED. The OED does not seem to know what that is. Mnemonic. Okay. M-N-E-M-O-N-I-C. You are correct. In fact, it is a device to aid the memory. In later, uh-huh. in later use. Oh wait, okay. Uh, a device to aid the memory. Semicolon. Specifically, a pattern of letters, ideas, or associations which assists in remembering something. So we are both correct. Sure, like Roy G. Biv mm-hmm. for the exactly, color spectrum. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All well, right, this then. was a fun little. <laughs> That's a weird little bird walk. <laughs> okay. On brand. <laughs> Hashtag on brand. So on brand. Um, and with that. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We hope you leave this podcast more informed about all sorts of things than when you started. <laughs> Tune in next week for Pericles 201. We're getting yeah. back to it. Gonna be the tits. Going back to Jess's favorite play. Woohoo. Yo. Um, would you like to be Tim? Shipwrecks. <laughs> would you like to be Tim for this outgoing quote or Yellowhammer? Uh, I would like to be inverse, so I'll be Yellowhammer. Great. Okay. I perceive then that a woman may be honest according to the English print when she is a whore in the Latin. So much for marriage and logic. I'll love her for her wit. I'll pick out my runts there and for my mountains I'll mount upon. So fortune seldom deals two marriages with one hand and both lucky. The best is one feast will serve them both. Mary, for room, I'll have the dinner kept in Goldsmith's Hall to which kind gallants I invite you all. Whamlet out. If you enjoyed our podcast, please tell your friends, rate us, leave us a review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For show notes and other fun stuff, visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you're working on and thinking about. You can email us at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can also find us at hurlyburlyshakes on Instagram. Or hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. Early Burly Shakespeare Show is produced and edited by Aubrey Whitlock and Jess Hamlet. All opinions you heard are strictly our own and not affiliated with the institutions we represent. Did you change Hudson? Did you, I had Justin. I know, but the whole thing is that you react to not seeing it for the first oh, time. 
You're playing tricks on me. Got it. Okay. I am. 